0: so that more of us can live a healthier and happier life. Now, let's get into the episode. Hey, Genius Leader, and welcome to the guest episode of this show. Today, you'll hear my first part of the conversation with David Hemant, the CEO of Blue Coding. I broke down our conversation to two parts because it was a bit of a natural change of the topic that we have discussed with him, and also it became a bit of a longer Episode, and I know that you appreciate the shorter conversations. So, the first part is focusing on the business growth and um, running business in office versus hybrid versus virtually. David is uh, walking us through the journey of blue coding with that, having offices, then to going in the hybrid mode because of COVID, and then deciding to go fully remote and how that has enabled some things in the business, but also. Uh, provided some new challenges so david is sharing about the loss of community when you're in remote also about the friendships how you keep people aligned with each other on the purpose on the goals how you get people to collaborate with each other in a good way so there'll be a lot of conversation around that uh, topic that a lot of people are uh, trying to figure out how to work with that and I hope that uh, David's sharing can help you make a decision for you and your team or your company on which way do you want to go. I think this is the big mistake a lot of leaders are doing nowadays, that they stay in kind of hybrid for a bit too long, as in they are not taking an active decision on which way they want to work as a company. And that is hurting the uh, employees' uh, well-being and the productivity and the collaboration. So I hope that you'll get some reflections from our conversation with David and uh, that will help you to make up your mind and create that certainty for your employees that they are craving and need to be productive and good employees. So enjoy the conversation and see you on the other side. David, warmest
1: welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Anna.
0: Just off half an hour late <laughs> with starting this recording. <laughs> That's
1: what I told you earlier. The more important the call, the more technical issues we're going to have.
0: And I actually <laughs> want to get into this. How do you deal with all those tech, tech things, given that your whole business is online? But let's first start with what the business yeah. is.
1: Yeah, sure. who you are. So my business, my main business right now is called Blue Coding. And we do software developer nearshoring. So we hire developers in Latin America and mostly we have customers in the US and Canada. And um, we do custom development. So we build projects for some, uh, some of our customers. And for some of them, we build teams that then they work with directly. So it's more of a staff augmentation model. And I've had this business for nine years now.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a lot of time.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm always surprised. It still feels like we're trying to figure out what we're doing. But uh, yeah, almost 10 years.
0: Thanks for that comment, David, because I feel like uh, I put that pressure on myself with my business. We just discussed now before we started recording what I do, right? And I, my elevator pitch, so to say, is always different <laughs> depending on whom I talk to. I'm still trying to nail it down and I felt like this is so unprofessional, three and a half years into it. But you're saying like it's still working and it's work in progress, right? Nine years into it.
1: Yeah. So I have... a. Uh... I remember a few years ago, I used to joke we had an office and everybody came into the office. And I would joke that we went to the office to pretend to be adults for the day, but we actually had no idea what we were doing. And still nowadays, you know, there's frequent conversations in our management team about maybe we're doing everything wrong. Maybe we're in the the wrong line of business, you know? And so, yeah, I, I very much think that you never know. There's, do you remember these uh, these things people used to say about difference between a startup and and a, a more established company, which is the established company knows what they're doing and so on? I don't know. I think that's changed, and it's it kind of always in startup mode now.
0: I would I would say so as well that uh, I would say the bigger more established companies just have have learned to pretend better. <laughs>
1: yeah. well, it takes them longer to do things, and I'm, I will say it takes us longer to change what we're doing now, but. But yeah, we're always sitting down and saying, oh no, maybe it's all a mistake and we need to start over.
0: So what brings those conversations to the table? Is it some particular event? Is it some kind of struggles? Let's go in there.
1: Yeah, of course. So one of the main ones is when sales are low. Uh, Mm. And so our business is... We're we're contractors, essentially. And in many senses, our business is affected by the economy. So anytime the economy gets scared, so to speak, and businesses Mm. get scared because inflation, a recession is coming, coronavirus, anything like that, the first thing they do is say, "Oh, wait, wait, we need to hold on to our money. Let's not spend it. And so any sales conversations we were having dry up and oftentimes our projects get reduced. And so at that point, everybody on my team gets concerned that sits down and says, oh no, what are we doing? Maybe we should be in a different line of business. And so these, these conversations are generally sparked by a crisis of some sort. Uh, It might also be that, you know, we've been trying something over and over and we haven't been successful at it. Mm -hmm. Haven't figured out the marketing efforts yet or haven't figured out something related to recruitment. But that's when everybody sits down and and starts wondering whether or not we need to change things. And sometimes you do, but sometimes, in my experience, what you need to do is just keep doing what you're doing and it eventually sorts itself out. And it's not very obvious uh, when you're supposed to do one or when you're supposed to do another.
0: So how do you deal with that? Because it's such a tricky balance. Like, you know... First of all, entrepreneurship is about like getting the quick feedback right, and so on, and just as we said, like startups move faster than um more established companies and I was taught in the very beginning of my business that whatever you see now in your business is the result of what you've done ninety days ago. yeah, in the best case <laughs> I've learned <laughs> so how do you find that balance of sticking to something long enough to see the results? versus staying with something unsustainable and unhealthy for the company or for employees or you as a leader for way too long.
1: Yeah, so I have several thoughts on this. In my company, we say six months, right? So the, the mm-hmm. number is anything you do today, you probably see whether it worked out or not in six months, at least on, on the marketing side of things, for example. I've had this question many times, and I've always considered myself to be very practical, right? Mm-hmm. But I went to a conference recently in Portugal. Uh, it's called the... Ethical business building forum, and one of the conversations that were that was uh, was interesting in that conference was around uh, businesses being guided by principles or by pragmatism, and what you know what the speaker was saying was in general businesses tend to be very pragmatic, right, and so they'll do whatever they need to do so that this quarter looks good, as opposed to sticking to principle, and I Mm -hmm. think that that might be a mistake, and so thinking a little bit about you know, this, this idea of, well, I have a bad situation. Do I pivot now or do I stick to what I'm doing and see it through? And I think the answer is you have to have a good understanding of what principles you're operating on. Right? And so if you think about investing, for example, in general, the market goes up over a long period of time. Right? And so if you're investing for the long term and you know that, you don't have to worry about what's happening in the market today. And I think business is the same. So if you have a model that you won't, that you think works, and you know you think your customers are happy, and you think you have a service that's valuable, and you're just having a tough time today, well, see it through. If on the contrary, you're not sure about your principles, then maybe that's the time to, to start thinking about, maybe I need to pivot. But then the other thing is just sustainability. And so you mentioned, well, is it unsustainable? And the answer is, don't make decisions that are unsustainable, because then you won't be able to see them through. And I've mm-hmm. had experiences where I've hired services, for example, that were expensive, and I wanted to try them out. But the truth was, I only felt comfortable using them for two or three months before the weight of the, you know, the investment was too much, and I wanted to see results. And so in my experience, I should only get into things that I'm comfortable seeing through. right? So if I'd say, hey, I can spend this money for six months or for a year, or put this investment mm-hmm. in for six months or for a year to see what happens... Then I should do it because that gives me the time to really see it through without having to worry about making a decision now.
0: Such a good perspective, David. There, I really appreciate sharing that. Uh, this is quite a difficult thing for the many startups when when you're bootstrapped or you're counting every penny. So how how do you use the principles? How do you nail them down so that they become this inner uh, compass or the north star for you as a company? to To stick to the things and to make decisions with that longer term or midterm at least. So
1: I was actually mm-hmm. thinking that this must be more difficult for startups that have funding, external funding. Mm. And the reason I'm thinking that is because one of the principles in a bootstrap company is make money and don't lose money. Like, those mm-hmm. <laughs> have more cash coming in than going out. And so, mm. in my business, you know, many of the financial decisions up till now. Now we have a, a CFO and we have more sophisticated. Uh, You know, financial uh, outlooks. But in the past, a lot of it was how much money is left at the end of every month, right? Mm -hmm. All right, we can spend up to that amount, right? So if I had $100 left, I knew I could spend $80 and not be in trouble, Mm -hmm. right? And I knew I couldn't spend $200 because then I was running at a deficit. And so that was a very simple principle. The principle was don't spend more money than you make. Uh, And at least in in a bootstrap business, that's a very straightforward idea. I think there's some other ones that just come from your values. Like, so you might value uh, delivering a certain quality of service to your customers, right? Or we don't work with certain types of people that treat us poorly. Uh, Mm -hmm. And those, those are fairly straightforward. Sometimes there comes a question where, hey, my biggest client is not very nice to work with, right? And so do I keep him or do I not? And then you have to kind of balance that out. But I do think that companies that have external funding actually might be more prone to trying to quickly change their, their you know what they're doing and forget about their principles because they have access to a lot of cash, they're not constrained so much, and they also have time pressure, right? So their investors mm-hmm. are saying, we need results this quarter, we need results this year, whereas we don't really have to answer to anybody uh, as long as we can make payroll.
0: This is, again, a valuable point there. And I think that's an interesting conversation, David, because nowadays there is so much conversation and glorifying of the external money. And I do see businesses where it's, it's really necessary to, to scale or to build a product when it's heavy on R&D and you just don't have that money in your pocket uh, as the founder. But I feel like way too many companies went into that on that avenue without realizing what it entails for the business and losing this bigger picture or longer term side. And I think it's important to have these conversations just to remind people, Hey, there are different options here.
1: <laughs> yeah. And you know, I think that the option that you pick is really going to depend on who you are, what you care about, and what your experience is. And so there are businesses where you can't jump in with almost no money. You, know, you need, you need some, some capital. I started my business with like $200. Right? I just mm-hmm. needed to pay a few hours of development work because I was billing the customer. And so it was a consulting mm-hmm. business, essentially. If you want to set up a factory, you're going to need capital. And so it really depends on what you're doing. But I think there's other factors. So for example, when I started business, I really knew not... I didn't know much about business. And so Mm -hmm. it probably wouldn't have been a good thing for me to have several hundred thousand dollars available to spend. I would have spent them and then I wouldn't have had any more. And I always use the analogy of lottery winners. So there's Mm -hmm. some statistic that says that most lottery winners go bankrupt. And I think what happens is they don't have the opportunity to have to make small mistakes, right? So I've made many mistakes. They've just been $100 mistakes, $200, maybe $1,000 mistakes later on, and they grow, right? But they grow as I am able to, to learn from them. Whereas if you make that $100,000 mistake early, then you're in trouble and you you just really can't recover for it, from it. So mm. only risk what you can recover from is maybe a way to, to think about it. And then there's other things, you know, for example, uh, maybe if, if I sold this business, right, and I wanted to start something new, I might consider taking on external capital, right? Mm -hmm. Because now I have the experience. I know what to do with the money. I know the first, you know, few years of work and what needs to happen. Mm -hmm. And actually right now is a time when I'm considering outside investment of some sort. Right now we're considering friends, family, employees. And Mm -hmm. it's for a different reason. It's because I've been doing this for nine years. Most of my equity is built into the company and. It's a company after all, you know, you never know what might happen tomorrow. And so one conversation we've had with a team is that I'm very conservative in how I operate, right? So what we said earlier, where I I only spend, you know, as much as we have available at the end of every month, that's a very conservative way of growing. And so we grow Mm -hmm. slowly. And my team is saying, hey, we have a big opportunity. We want to grow fast. For that to happen, I need to feel comfortable risking more. And I need to be able to take a piece of that pie, put it in my pocket, and say, hey, if we lose everything, I still have something that I I built. So I think, yeah, there's certainly many approaches to it. I don't think there is a correct one, but I do think there's many benefits to to bootstrapping things. It helps you figure them out early on before you put a lot of money into it.
0: Yeah. Unless unless as you said, you need the capital to actually just get anywhere with yeah. a product R&D or whatever it is. Yeah. yeah, Or yeah. setting up a location like a factory. David, I would like to go into the remote part of, of blue coding because sure. you you mentioned in a bit earlier, like there was an office and you were coming in the office to play adults for a day. But now you don't have an office anymore. So well, can you walk me through that? Behind yeah. me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, yeah. but it is not an office where people are coming uh, to work together no, that's in Employees of your company. And, and blue coding is in 15 countries if I'm not... I don't know. have the exact
1: number, but I want to say something around 15. Yep.
0: Yeah, I can tell you the people. story
1: of the company and how it started and why it became remote, if that sounds good.
0: Yeah, that's um, what I want to go with.
1: So I studied telecommunications engineering and I lived, and I live still, in uh, the Dominican Republic in a city called Santiago, which is not a very big city. It's about a million people.
0: But <laughs> you said it to the person living in Iceland for 360 people.
1: <laughs> I graduated and I, I got married uh, almost as soon as I graduated and I got a job as a software developer. And the reason was that the what I had studied telecom engineering kind of required big companies and. The most of the big companies in the country had their tech headquarters in the capital, and I didn't want to move for various reasons. And so I got a job in software development. I was there for a few months, and then I got fired. Sadly, best thing that happened. But uh, then I got another job in software development, and that was a complete polar opposite of uh, you know in terms of uh, culture, style, and. The problem was I made like, I, don't want to, I want to say $500 a month or something. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't enough to live on. And so I said, well, I need to make more money. And I had, I had already had some small business ventures in the past. And I, uh, I had, you know, during that time, I kind of, I did some side work, right? So I built some websites, I did some consulting work. Um, but I was able to find a opportunity working remotely um, mm-hmm. for a company in the US. And it was a part-time thing. I did it in the evenings, And so for about six months, I had two jobs. I had a job from 8 a.m. until 5 or 6 p.m. And then I had my other job was 8 p.m. until 12. And so that was very tiring, as you can imagine. I didn't have much much time to do anything else. It was exhausting. But in those four hours in the evenings, I made like two or three times what I was making in the daytime. And so at some point, the apparently I did a good job. The company reached out to me and said, Hey, do you want to move to a full-time project? It's on a contract basis. We can't promise it's a long-term thing. Uh, but I said, sure, you know, I'll just save up some money. And if anything goes wrong, I'll find another job. Um, so I quit my day job. I moved to this contract work. And during that process, I said, well, you know, I also know other really good software developers in the Dominican Republic that speak English and that are also making the same amount of money that I did. And I'm sure I can find them you know, some work. And so I set out to find a client and I did. I found one client who I'm still friends with today. He's a very nice guy and, and we worked together for many years. And he, he said, yeah, sure. I'll hire a software developer for like, I don't know, 15 hours a week or something like that. And so I went to a friend and I said, Alex, do you want to, you know, do some extra work? And so that's how we started. And for, you know, for the first few years, uh, actually for the first probably six months to a year, it was just me. And I was doing this in the evenings. And then during the daytime, I had my my regular work. Eventually, that that contract work I was doing ended. And I went on to do more freelance projects that were shorter, or I had more flexibility around. So I spent more time building the company. I was initially working at home, but then I found the co-working location. It was a very small co-working location. I moved there, spent, I want to say, a year there. And I hired my first part-time employee there. And then at one point, the co-working space closed. I don't know what's up with co-working spaces. They don't make sense to me financially, but I know I've done the math. It (laughs) it never adds up. So at that point, uh, I had met somebody in the co-working space who told me, he's who also was starting a software company. And he said, look, let's go rent an office and we'll split the costs. So we rented a very small office and we went there and he had one employee, I had one employee. And so it was four of us in the office. Eventually I hired one more person and it kind of grew from there. And then we had... Then I moved to another location with a bigger office. Then we had two offices, one next to the other. Then it was three in the same building. And at that point, I want to say maybe there was probably in all 20, 25 people. This must have been around 2017, 18, something like that. Mm -hmm. And I said, all right, well, we're growing. And it seems like we're going to continue growing. So let's rent a more appropriate office space. And I went and I found a Large house. It was a three-story house, and it was set up in a way where the rooms could be set up into offices. Like it wasn't, mm-hmm. it wasn't too much work. We rented this house um, in in the same city in Santiago, and started hiring people there. And the team grew, and eventually we had about twenty people going to that office. And by the beginning of the pandemic, we also had about twenty remote people. Mm-hmm. So we had started to hire remotely for certain roles. Um, one of them was software developers. Like I never. Really needed all of the software developers to be in-house, especially the ones that were working on client projects. Um, but other roles that we were hiring remotely were things like uh, sales and marketing because they needed people with certain English levels that maybe we couldn't find locally uh, or certain skill sets that we couldn't find locally and so by the end of the you know by the beginning of the pandemic, we had about forty people, and suddenly we couldn't go to the office anymore, and so I said, well, um, you know we always had this concern that we had a bunch of juniorish people. And the concern was, how are these people going to perform on their own at home? And well, I guess we had to find out at that point. And the answer was very well, they were fine. There was a learning process. It was a very interesting learning process where we had people who were used to coming to an office and they had a desk and they had a, you know, a, a door that they would close and, and kind of a schedule around it. And suddenly we were sending them home. And a lot of these people were just going home and sitting on their couches and trying to get work done from their couch. And it didn't work very well. And so part of the conversations we were having in the company were around, hey, look, you need a desk. Like, Come pick up a desk from the office, take it home. You need an air conditioner if you live in a hot place. This is a hot island. You need a backup power source if in your location, your power tends to go out or backup internet. right? Uh, you probably need a good chair and, and an extra monitor. So come and pick them up. And some people were really reluctant. And I don't know, do you use two monitors or one monitor?"
0: Uh, I have the laptop and the external screen. So right. it's one big...
1: So that, that's what I did too. I sometimes have three, but I really only use two. But when people aren't used to using two monitors, they find it super weird. Like you'll give them a laptop and an external monitor and they will They they will just keep their monitor off. And you have to tell them, like, turn your monitor on, use it for a while, but they're not used to it. And so until they get used to it, it's, it's a kind of an uphill battle. Hmm. But once they do, they don't want to go back. And so I feel it was the same with setting up a proper remote environment like people want to work from their couch and you have to a little bit force them to
0: set up. I want to pose you here, David, for yeah. the two things. Like, first of all, why is the, does that matter? Why shouldn't we work from the sofa? Just in case it's not uh, like obvious to obvious? people here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then the second thing, why was your concern especially or particularly about the juniors? So I would like to address those two Okay,
1: let's go So I'll start with the second one. I had worked remotely. And so I was familiar with the fact that if you don't have a good workspace, you don't, you don't focus. That's it. And so, and I I think many people aren't aware of that. You know, I've met many people who work remotely, and they're like, "Yeah, I work from an Airbnb, and I sit on a couch." And I don't think you're putting out the best quality of work. There are, and and maybe it's just me. You know, maybe it's just that I am not good at at keeping focus. But when you're somewhere noisy and people are talking to you, and you're uncomfortable and it's hot, you really can't focus that well. Mm -hmm. And so, the question was, how do we take that uh, that focus space that we have in an office home Mm -hmm. and they, that's just my theory. Like I'm, I am I have many friends who do the nomad thing and they seem to be fine with it. It's not my thing. And in general, I feel like it's not the best practice that I'd want to bring into the company. Uh, ultimately, what really matters is that you get the work done. Uh, but I think many people just don't realize that they're falling behind or not performing well because they don't have uh, the right conditions.
0: Or well, they have less energy for the rest of their day after they're done with work just because they... Part of their energy was spent, spent or wasted on uh, just the environment that was suboptimal for their productivity. So maybe they even produce the right amount, but yeah. they're in in that minus in those red numbers on energy in general for their life, and that actually creates that related effect. That
1: is, you energy. know, I I've uh, heard an analogy of a a stoplight, right? So uh, you might be able to go to a stoplight that's red, look both ways, see that no cars are coming, and then just cross on red and you'll be fine, right? Nothing happened. Nobody crashed. You don't want the whole population doing that because in general, yes, there are individuals who are good at certain things and can figure them out. But if, if you're thinking about a group of people, you generally want to put the conditions in place so that they can be successful. Even if an individual might be able to overcome harsh conditions to be able to be successful for a group, you want to make it easy. And so, mm. That's the way I think about things in general. It's, look, let's set people up for success, whether that's office space or making sure they're paid on time, whatever it is, giving them the right tools, giving them an extra monitor. Let's make it easy so that then they just have to put the, you know, the, uh, their work in. And uh, I don't know if you've heard of this book, Atomic Habits, or mm-hmm. the recent book, James Clear. It, it, if you think about it, what, you know, the, the, the main point in the book is if you want to do something, make it easy to do. You know, make it convenient and make it easy and make it available. And so I think the same about work. So going to your other point around the juniors, we had the impression, so for example, thinking about the development team, we had the impression that there was a lot of learning that was happening through just the face-to-face communication. communication. You know, sit next to me, let's do this together. And we were afraid that was going to disappear. So that was one part of it. Um, when we think about software engineers in particular, uh, there's the, the concept of getting stuck. And I think that applies to any any line of work. But You know, the the way we differentiate junior software developer from a senior software developer in in broad terms is the junior developers tend to get stuck and the senior developers can help people get unstuck, right? Mm So, you know, something that is a five-minute thing could take somebody 10 hours if they're stuck and they just don't know how to do it. And so I think we didn't want people getting stuck and us not finding out about it until they had wasted four or five hours. You know, when you're in an office... Mm -hmm. You look to the other side and say, "Hey, what are you up to? Oh, I'm stuck here. Okay, cool. Let's fix it. Um, so I think that was it. I do still think that there's great benefits to working you know, in the same office space or, or closely, at least, uh, when you're starting out. And it's something I'd recommend. And in fact, I think you can see that most remote jobs are not for entry-level people. But you know, if it's what you have to do, I think there's ways around it.
0: So how did you decide to go fully remote with the blue coding?
1: Yeah. So during the pandemic, we were obviously fully remote because we had to be. One thing that happened during that time is we kept growing. And so mm-hmm. the pandemic, the first three months, nobody wanted to spend the dime and all companies were scared of what was going to happen. And so that what we were, you know, growth was very slow. But then after that, things picked up and we ended up hiring more. And suddenly we're like, well, we're not in the office. What do we care where we hire? So we took advantage and said, let's hire in other places where we have access to more talent that we don't have locally. Um, and so the team... Uh, that was 40 people when the pandemic started. You know, at the end of the pandemic was I want to say almost 100, and so the yeah, maybe not 100, maybe 80, something like that. But the the point is that it was it, it grew a lot, and mostly it grew outside of uh, the city we were in. Another thing that happened was during that period, many of the people that worked uh, in the office had moved from another town for college and then had stayed, right? And during the pandemic, they said, well, you know, I'm going to go back home because I'm paying rent and I'm just stuck here all day. And they started having conversations around, can we stay where we are, you know, or do we have to come back once this is over? And we, a few people said, yeah, you know, seems like you're doing a good job. I don't see why you can't be remote. We first had this huge office. Then... And it was closed for like six months. And then at one point, we said, well, it doesn't seem like everybody's coming back to the office because we've already given people permission to stay remote. Um, let's, let's rent a smaller office. And so we sold many of the things that we had. You know, A lot of the desks were sold to employees, a lot of the monitors. Just take them, keep them, pay us whatever you want. We moved to a smaller office. And then that was essentially storage plus some working space. And we had that for another, I want to say, almost a year. And I remember one day my dad was visiting me and he was asking me, and I said, well, we have this office and it's there, but nobody really goes to it. And he said, why don't you close it? And I said, well, we have stuff and we'd have to sell it. And he said, well, how much do you pay for rent? And I told him, and he said, just put that stuff on the street and let people take it for free. It'll be cheaper. (laughs) And so at that point was when I decided that maybe it was time to close the office. It's interesting because now we've grown more and our customers are becoming larger. And large customers have the habit of thinking that you need office space Mm. and so you know when we're talking to large customers like where are your offices and we're like oh we don't really have any anymore we used to and sometimes that's what they want they want they want to see an office with a logo of theirs and they want to go and show up and be able to say hi to people and so Mm. we've had the conversation where we will do it for you if that's really what you want Um, but so far we haven't had to
0: so how has been the learning since then, since you closed down the office, about the culture, about the well-being? You already said like you took some active action for the ergonomics, uh, for the productivity of employees, who, wherever they are. But what has the journey been? And, and when actually, when did you close the office, David?
1: 2020. I mean, let's, let's say nobody's been in the office since March 2020.
0: Okay. So it's pretty much since the beginning of pandemic. Yeah. 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 All right. So how has the journey been? What are the main learnings um, with that?
1: So I think there was a feeling of loss of community. And for example, we had a very nice lunch area. And during lunch, everybody would go and hang out. We'd have crazy conversations. And it was a lot of fun, right? And so, and that was a space where people from different departments would hang out. And I think that disappeared suddenly. And so that was one of the big things, was there was no more uh, water cooler conversations, so Mm. to speak and I, I think the team really felt that I, you know there was a downshift in in the moral feeling of the team and yeah, the morale uh, but the from early on we said well now we're remote what are we going to do and we tried a whole bunch of things and we said let's do movie night on fridays and everybody's invited uh, And so it was like some i don't know netflix party or something we try and and that, that that wasn't very successful it turns out people didn't want to hang out with their coworkers on Friday nights. Uh who would have known. Um, but it's funny because it's something that in the office would happen. Like people would mm-hmm. say, hey, let's go out, right? Mm-hmm. After work. And but it's a different situation. You know, I I think that the activity wasn't engaging enough. One thing that was very successful was playing online games. So I don't know if you remember this game Among Us. It was popular maybe a year or two no. ago. Anyways, it was this a very simple game, but we somehow got like 20 people on the team to, to engage on Fridays and play among us. So we, we had that. We did other things. So for example, we installed an application on Slack called Donut. It was called, mm-hmm. uh, it was called Donut Call. That uh, Right now it's called Donut Call or something like that. And basically what it does is it pairs you with a random person every week. Mm-hmm. And you have a 30-minute conversation with them where you just talk about anything. So we tried that for a while. It was, you know, I did it a whole bunch of times and then we realized that people would kind of leave the channel little by little okay. and so they didn't want that interaction so much so that was a strange thing I think the culture has shifted you know we no longer have so much of a close relationship with our coworkers, with the exceptions of the ones that we work with closely right mm-hmm. so I have probably five or six people that I work with closely and we'll sit on calls and have conversations about non-work things but there are many people now at the company that I don't know Right. Or I don't know well, and I've spoken to once or twice because we're not in an office and I don't get to stop by and say hi and, and see what that's all about. So there are drawbacks. I think that's one of them is that it's very hard to keep a culture where people know each other. And, I, and maybe that's also a function of the company growing. You know, It's not the same to have a 20-person company than 120. But I do think that that is lost a little bit. I do think that you have to be much more intentional about creating spaces for people to, to develop friendships and talk. But I also, you know, what I, what, what I think we've learned is that people don't want to spend more time on their computer than they have to in general. And they want to go hiking on weekends and that's okay. You know, I, say, I think their social spaces have moved a little bit.
0: I would like to ask you, David, why do you actually pay emphasis on this community feeling within the company? If it is a fully remote place, why would it matter to have that feeling among the employees? Do you feel like it's affecting the productivity or what is going on there?
1: That's a very good question that I, <laughs> I wouldn't have asked myself. I just thought it was important. I think that it was just the... That has always been the feeling in the company. You know, We were always friends. Mm. We were always kind of embarked on a crazy adventure together. And, and it was always important to try to keep that, that feeling. There was an aspect of retention to it. And so we mm. want people to stay in a job where they're happy. It's good for the company. But I think we always saw it as a strength and also as one of the things that everybody liked at the company. And I do still think we have part of that feeling. It's just shifted a little bit. So I, I am oftentimes, I, when I think of friendships, there's some friendships that I call circumstantial friendships. And those are the friendships that you have because you're in, the right, you're in the same place together, right? So you might have a friend from the gym. You might have a friend from work. And that friend from the gym is your friend, but mainly because we see each other every Monday at 8 a.m. for the yoga class, right? And if you took away that space and we didn't create another space to share, then that friendship would dissipate over time. And so I think that we lost many of those circumstantial friendships during the pandemic, if that makes sense. Yeah, uh, but I, we probably replaced them with other ones, you know? And so uh, ultimately, you don't have to be close friends with the people at work as long as you have close friendships that keep you healthy. I think you, have to, you should have a good relationship with the people at work, but you don't, they don't have to be your best
0: friends. Definitely. I agree. It's really about the balance there. What to- you as an employer can do and should do versus keeping the responsibility and accountability on the person themselves. Because I usually say that happiness is a choice, right? And relationships are proven to be the the best predictor of our happiness, right? And that should be my choice as the human being, how I nurture those relationships. And yes, I can accept the help or even ask for help from my employer, but it should not be the responsibility of the employer. This might be an popu- unpopular opinion, but I think it's important to keep that balance on the right side of it uh, so that we don't get into weird relationships with yeah, our employees.
1: Well, That's very interesting. And I, I think that, on the contrary, the employer needs to be aware that they don't get to dictate what people get excited about, right? You know, I, We have a lot of cool things that I would love everybody to be excited about. And many times people just don't care that much. You know, mm. <laughs> And so, but I can't make them care. I can put it out there and say, hey, I have this cool idea. I'd love for you guys to participate or be a part of it. And, and this not only applies to me as, as the CEO of the company, but also other people, other departments have initiatives that they'd like everybody to be a part of. And sometimes people just aren't that excited about them. And so, you know, you, you put it out there and it's kind of like having a party at your house. You invite your friends and some of them will show up and some of them won't. We've started a... Well, I've started. So I, I, I you know, I, I belong to a religion called the Baha'i Faith. and I said, well, for me, it's important to think a little bit about spiritual things, and I, I set up a call on Friday, it's the first Friday of every month. We actually have it this Friday, and I said, look, anybody who wants to come here and share their thoughts around what things they care about and what things they're worried about, and you're welcome to come. And I invited everybody in the company, and you know, probably five, six people show up, and that's okay, right? That's fine. There are many other people that just it's not their interest, and that's not part of their job, and that's okay. You know, they don't have to be involved in things that I care about. We have a nonprofit that we've set up as kind of a a project starting from the company. And we have 10 people probably in the company that are really interested and engaged and a bunch of people that think it's an interesting idea, but don't necessarily want to be a part of it. But I do think that it's um, the company's job to create the conditions so that the people can take advantage of these things if they want to, right? So a little bit about what we were talking about earlier, where we say, well, let's create the conditions so that people can be successful. Let's create the conditions so that they can have conversations about things other than work. They can establish friendships. Uh, they can find mental support if that's something that, you know, that, that you're you're looking to offer, etc.
0: I think you're tapping on to an important point here, David, with we need to open the opportunities, cannot force them onto people. So people need to know like, yeah, if you have some initiative, let's like bring it on and let's see if there are enough people, whether it's two or five or 10 that are important for this project to somehow take off, let's just discuss it and, and throw it out there. We're open to that. If that is what help, helps you to build this community feeling and, and feel like you belong in, in the company. Yeah. But it cannot be some must, you know, like that is in a contract, like you have to participate in at least one of the things or something like this to stay an employee at the blue Coding. Yeah. Well, we had an experience
1: recently with performance reviews and our People and Culture team designed the performance review process and they tried to implement it. And all of the managers and everybody else was like, oh, this is difficult and we don't like it. And so, and and what I told all of the managers, is, look, let's do it. Let's learn from it. Let's take the feedback to them and say, these are the things we don't like. It's heavy, it's tiring. We want something simpler. And so I think it's the same, even with things that the organization can mandate, because we could say, look, you just have to do this. This is part of the job. It's not necessarily beneficial to mandate things that people hate. And so, or or they will oppose heavily. And so, um, you know, I I think that there's a, thinking about culture a little bit, right? There are places where you're expected to adopt the culture of the place. So if you think about the military, for example, there's not much space for opinion about how we want to manage this and whether or not you like to be told how to do things. You know, if you're in the military, you're in the military, you follow the rules, that's it. There's a command structure, follow it, right? there's other spaces like groups of friends where there are no rules and there is no culture and we each one of us brings whatever we want to the table and i think company is kind of a middle place where you know especially a growing company where first thing is culture needs to change as a company grows because that's the nature of of growth is that we need new things new processes new ways of looking at things so it will change even if everybody hates the idea that it's going to change the second thing is there are many directions into which it could change, and, and that's guided oftentimes by leadership, but also by employees. You know, by the things employees love and hate, things they love will probably stay, the things they hate will probably go. Um, management does have some say in, in which direction. But finally, it's guided by what people you hire. So mm-hmm. you could take the approach of saying, look, we are a company that values order and structure, and we want people who do exactly as they're told. And you could hire only that type of person right, and be successful at it. or you could be a company that says, no, no, we want a little bit more diversity in our work culture and work outlook. And then you're going to have people of different types. And then as you know, management is going to have to deal with, we have to manage different types of people. And there's some challenges there.
0: Yeah, and there are trade-offs with both, right? That's yeah. what we need to accept that. Whatever in life we, we choose as a path, as an individual or a company, as a leadership of the team, uh, there are trade-offs. And we just need to accept the fact and really decide like is this the trade-off I'm ready to go for and, and handle somehow.
1: Yeah. So if you you know if you were to think about I'm looking back and saying if I were to start a company again, right? So there are certain mm-hmm. things that I think are are key for me and for people I want to work with. So for example, I don't have the time or energy to tell people how to do things specifically. Right? And so mm-hmm. what that means is one, I need to hire people that already know what they're doing. Right. For me, I don't want people at this stage in my life and my career and the things I want to do. I don't want very junior people on my team because I feel like it takes too much of my energy to have to train them from the beginning. That doesn't mean there's not space for junior people in the team, just not working directly with me. And so if I were to start a new team, I'd say, all right, let me not try to figure this out on my own again. Let me hire a CFO that knows what they're doing, you know, a revenue officer that knows what they're doing, and so on. And then we'll figure it out together. Other things that I, I value, for example, are people being honest. Like That's one of the key things for me. And I don't care if we have disagreements, but I need to be honest about them. And so there's going to be a a set of principles that you know are very important for you and hire for those. And then don't worry too much about the other ones. But there might be some that you're going to find that turned out to be more important than you thought they were. So you'll discover those along the way.
0: I'm curious, you said like, if I would start the business again now, David, and you mentioned the learnings. If you put yourself in the shoes, like, okay, you're giving this chance now, rolling the tape back, back rewinding it, and starting all over again, and you have all this knowledge and you have these insights, would you really go for that? Hiring the team of experts and so on, especially if you're bootstrapping. And as you said, you started with $200. I,
1: I need to have the money. No, I can't. I mean, you, <laughs> you, you, <laughs> in fact, even today, even today, I have many amazing people on the team that we really can't afford. They're here because they believe that this is going somewhere, mm. right? But the truth is, they could be paid a lot more money elsewhere. And so part of my responsibility is... Remember when I said earlier that the team says, Hey, we need to grow faster. There's an opportunity Mm -hmm. here. I've managed to hire some very amazing people that I need to keep happy. And part of keeping them happy is making them this a a valuable business proposition to them. Right. And so Mm -hmm. this is the time where I have to set aside my personal preference for more conservative growth and say, All right, let's go for this more aggressive growth because otherwise I don't get to have this team. And so I think that, yes, you don't, you can't start from scratch the hiring, you know, unless you, unless you structure it in some other way. Maybe it's a partnership of a different kind. But I think there's some steps that you skip. And so there's, there's a lot of learning that happens through mistakes. And hopefully, you don't have to repeat that learning.
0: Yeah, for sure. We would hope so. <laughs> you yeah. keep making some other mistakes at least, right? I, I like this quote. I don't remember who it belongs to, but a uh, mistake made uh, twice is a choice. <laughs> and that's what I see as a big differentiator of uh, great entrepreneurs versus those who, who struggle. Mm -hmm. that people choose to make the same mistake again and again. And I'll be honest, I'm (laughs) sometimes in that loser camp. (laughs) It just takes a lot of rewiring. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Genius Leadership Podcast. If you enjoyed the conversation, hit the subscribe button. Please rate, review, and share to help more people discover the show and become the better leaders. For more conversations about living in your zone of genius, connect with me on LinkedIn. Genius Leadership is an honest conversation about leading yourself and others. And it is my honor to be a guide in overcoming everything.